Welcome to the Society Column, Swansea's social sciences podcast. My name is Gideon Calder, and in this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Joe Whitaker, lecturer in cyber threats at Swansea University, about his work on the internet and how it is connected to crime and to terrorism, and particularly, as we'll be discussing, to the rise of right-wing extremism. We met in late April 2023, and we had a fascinating conversation about the sheer range of implications of these issues. I hope you enjoy it. So, Joe, uh, great to have the chance to talk to you about your work today. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey in terms of how it was that you came to be researching these issues? Yeah, it's quite quite interesting, actually. It's it's almost by accident that um, I came to Swansea to do my PhD in 2016 it's on the grand topic of online radicalisation. I was interested in terrorists, how they use the internet. And as most people do when they start a PhD, they do a literature review. And I thought, oh, if I'm going to research the internet i need to have a chapter on social media and then getting into that chapter looking at the research these idea of echo chambers and filter bubbles start to start to pop up a little bit and the funny thing is is that chapter completely hit the cutting room floor and i went a completely different direction uh, i ended up doing a very criminological court document based phd and this chapter hit the cutting room floor but there were still some quite interesting questions and then I think the first thing that happened was there was an opportunity to a book chapter. And then almost immediately after that, uh, a grant bid with uh, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, which is at the time was a conglomeration of Facebook, Twitter, um, Microsoft and YouTube. Uh, and I just thought, wouldn't it be really interesting to think about this concept of social media platforms, recommendation systems, and whether if you started feeding bad stuff into them, whether they, they started shooting even more bad stuff out the end. So I think that's that's really how I, how I kind of got into it. Um, and everything's really come from there. And it's really become the main thing that I research now. Could you say a bit more? I mean, people use terms like echo chamber and maybe filter bubble and other such things quite a lot. Could you Could you tell us a bit more about what we mean by those and why I, I kind of take it from your work that we have to be quite careful about how we use those terms. Absolutely, yes. So the concept of an echo chamber has been around a really long time. And depending on how you read in it, it could go as far back as people like John Stuart Mill arguing against it, saying that, you know, if all humanity was of one view, there would be... A, uh, fundamentally, it is a prescriptively a bad thing to uh, to have people that are so like-minded that they... Uh, that, that, that they kind of are so homogenous that they uh, grouping together and there will very likely be some kind of bad outcomes from that. So it's often described as groupthink. It may be some kind of output of what psychologists might call confirmation bias that we human beings like to spend time with people that are of similar mind and that agree with us. Now, there've been a lot of people that argue that this leads to bad outcomes. So group polarization theory would suggest that the more that people spend uh, at time in homogenous groups they tend to veer towards the more extreme versions within within that group so if you put a group of environmentalists together uh, they will be become the most extreme version of the, the environmentalists the same would ha happen for political parties the same would happen for, uh, uh, for for extremists as well so that's roughly the concept of an echo chamber uh, an 
ideologically homogenous group of people. Now, that's one thing. And now you throw in social media to the mix and algorithmic amplification of certain types of con content. So the idea of a filter bubble was coined uh, in uh, Eli Paris's book. I think it was 2011. It was called the filter bubble. And he basically marks the day that Google started personalizing their search results, which I think he said was 2009, and said that this was the beginning of the personalization age. And these platforms, Google first, then Facebook soon afterwards, were going to start serving people up what he called auto-propaganda that basically just fed them more and more stuff that they already agreed with. And it would lead to uh, an increase uh, in people thinking that the view that they held was generally how most other people f- other people felt and there wouldn't be exposure to other people's uh, uh, ideas too and it would basically just lead to these kind of silos where people just went down the rabbit hole and and, and stayed down there that being said all of both of those terms are conceptually ambiguous and <laughs> are debated by, by other people and actually kind of empirically so as well i think it is often assumed that that is correct and that if you're acting on the internet, that you have more exposure to views that agree that you agree with and less exposure to what those you disagree with. I'm not even sure that is empirically the case. I think that there is prob- some quite good evidence to suggest that people have more access to views that they disagree with on, uh, on social media. So really difficult conceptual grounds, difficult empirical grounds for all of this, I think. So it's obviously a really topical field, this, and you can imagine all sorts of implications and kind of issues arising from this and all kinds of spheres in society where those implications would kind of play out. I mean, it it affects a great deal about how we think about each other and how we interact, how we think about the institutions that we're part of and all the rest of it. Um, But just in terms of your specific findings... What is there there? What, what what are the kind of key points that you find when you look at, for example, the way in which this falls with extremist groups and how they use these channels? Yeah, so I think there's two key findings. The first is that on the platform that has by far and away the most sophisticated recommendation system, which we which we investigated, which was YouTube, we found that just as our hypothesis suggested, if you started to feed bad content, we were looking specifically at the far right. If you started to watch far right videos, it would throw up more and more extreme far right videos. So in essence, that is part of the idea of a filter bubble being fulfilled. And I think the logical response to that is shrug. Of course, these these companies have spent billions, if not trillions of dollars optimizing these platform, these recommendation systems to do exactly that should we be surprised if, if if that's the kind of output? So that's that, that's one thing. The second thing is that some of the other platforms that we looked at, we found no, no effects at all. So one of them was Gab, which is, I think that you would probably describe it as alt tech, which, which generally means uh, a place that has, um, um, is not necessarily subject to uh, mainstream platforms that don't necessarily have so much content removal and, uh, usually some kind of uh, very firm commitment to free speech. So they're not really taking much content down. So we want to see if Gab's algorithm promoted extreme content, which it didn't. We found that uh, it's, it's got a very kind of primitive up and down vote type system. And you were just as likely to find extreme stuff 
on the chronological timeline as you were on the algorithmically driven one. However, we found a lot of extreme content on that platform. So that kind of tells the other side of the story in quite an interesting way as well, that the recommendation systems might be important for amplifying content in some circumstances, but the sheer amount of it on other platforms, even when it's not being algorithmically driven, is also very important as well. So it is important to think about how things may be amplified, but let's not lose sight of the fact that it is also about the wider environment and online ecosystem that it's part of as well. So what does that tell us about how we should respond then? Because, I mean, it's one thing to be more aware of how these processes are happening and the difference that, you know, recommendation systems are making or whatever. But it's another thing to then work out how best to find a balance between, you know, the free circulation of information, people being entitled to look at what they like up to a certain limit. And on the other hand, those concerns about what happens when certain messages get really kind of falsely amplified or, or amplified in a way which is actually potentially really harmful. Yes. So there's two important stakeholders that we should think about responses. So the first one is government and legislation. So we can see uh, through in the United Kingdom, we have the uh, on oncoming online safety bill, which uh, I, please don't ask me about the politics of this, but I, my understanding is uh, that needs to pass in this session, otherwise it is completely dead. But that'll be the main piece of kind of internet regulation. And although it's still in draft form and is ping-ponging and, and things like that, will very likely have something that relates to recommendation systems. Uh, moving to, to the European Union, they've, they, they've also got the Digital Services Act, which will again deal with these kind of issues too. There's also some um, legislation in the United States, which is probably somewhat doomed, but it's certainly something they're thinking about too. Now, most policy or legislative responses are thinking mostly about transparency. They fundamentally want uh, user transparency. So you might, you may have noticed on some platforms, uh, you get a potentially an option to say, why am I being recommended this? And it gives the user some kind of explainable understanding of where they are and that, that, that offers them something. Uh, in at different iterations of the online safety bill, and it's difficult to talk about this because the drafts change and who knows how it will come out. But the idea was that Ofcom, who will be the regulator, will have some level of access to understanding what goes into this uh, and have some kind of auditing powers of it. So although that I, it's difficult to, for anyone to argue against the idea of transparency, but it's not exactly a strong response. I mean, it's, not, it's not as strong as a lot of a lot of other potential responses. So the second stakeholders think about is the tech companies. So what they have done, and I think that this is interesting to say the least, is they will generally say if content violates our terms of service, we remove it. Um, we can argue as to whether that actually is the case or not, because it's a very difficult challenge. But th th that is their policy, at least. But they've also developed a second category of what they call borderline content. Different platforms call it different things, but we'll call it borderline content. And it, this is content that doesn't clearly break the terms of service, doesn't clearly necessarily break a law either, but is somewhat in the gray area. I think we all realize that political speech can be quite difficult at times to work out exactly where it stands. 
And what they will do if they label something borderline content is that they will make it so it cannot be amplified. Uh, so it either cannot be recommended or at the very least is downranked in some kind of way. So that's an interesting approach to this kind of issue. So you say, we're not going to delete this content altogether because there are some quite stringent free speech issues there, uh, particularly with the far right and how close that can be to mainstream politics in a lot of countries, including this one. Um, but we are going to make it so we're not providing a great big amplifying platform for them. However, I'm still not convinced that that gets rid of my free speech concerns about this. Fundamentally, there is a value judgment that is being made about a certain kind of political speech. It is almost always something that we could call political speech. And there are just <laughs> there are certain biases uh, that are very likely embedded into the sorts of people that are making these kind of decisions. And it is very difficult to wave away the complaints of people like the former president of the United States who claimed that the tech companies were, were biased against conservatives. Uh, and if content is being regularly downranked, uh, uh, that, that is on that side of politics much more frequently than on the other side of politics, then I think that does raise some quite important free speech concerns. So I'm not really sure that that is the solution. It is certainly a stronger solution than what most legislators are proposing. But I'm, I think that it may end up causing more problems than, uh, than exists. And perhaps to, to take it to something of a more philosophical level, I, I think it probably would depend on how you think about free speech and for what reason you think it is important to protect it. So if you took a very classic liberal approach that it is about stopping people being interfered with by government, then, or, or, or by, any, uh, by any power, then it's not necessarily problematic to downrank content because the content still exists. You're not, it, 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 is still, it is still something which exists out there. If you took the view instead, though, that it is free speech is important because it is about citizen participation in democracy and there being a lot of different diverse voices out there, all of a sudden having your hand on the scales, I think, starts to present quite a big problem for us here. So that probably is the future of how we start to deal with this kind of thing. And I think there's some challenges ahead. One of the things that really strikes you when you hear you saying that is that <clears throat> any algorithm, whether it's downgrading or, or promoting things, is it's never neutral, right? So the idea that somehow we just encounter ideas and we just kind of come across them and we should all be free to follow our interests and our instincts around the internet doesn't really work because we never we never really are doing it in some kind of completely free way insofar as we're always being directed towards things and away from other things because that's how the mechanism works so it's it's a it's often used as a kind of example of what free speech looks like the internet but in many ways it's it's quite complex the degree to which it really is that kind of forum where there's just the interplay of ideas in some kind of simple way absolutely and and let's absolutely also not forget the commercial aspect which yeah. kind of very quietly is at the back of all of this that all of these platforms are primarily concerned with user retention for advertising purposes so 
getting it into this debate about citizen participation and free speech has this kind of insidious feel yeah. that there is this underlying... Uh, you want your audience, right? Like, exactly. Like, like and, Fox News wants its audience and like, yeah. And, yeah. And, and to go back to that distinction between policymakers and tech companies, that's really important because if the policymakers are not providing much in the way of solutions, then um, by uh, what that will leave is a group of uh, a group of companies who are primarily motivated by profits and and advertising revenue and things like that. If that's what governments would rather do because they don't want to weigh into this very difficult free speech debate, so be it. But let's be aware that those the decisions are going to be made on the basis of profits and losses, not on the the good of citizen participation. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Just just as a final question, really. Um, I mean, we've talked about the implications of this in terms of regulation and the challenges it poses for how we kind of balance different kinds of priorities here. But do you think there are other similar issues coming down the track which are just as big as this and that actually, I mean, what does the future future look like in terms of this kind of research? <sighs> it's part of the... Uh... Every conference I go to for the last couple of years, it is about the metaverse and concerns about that. And if we are at a stage now with, a, you know, a mostly mobile, uh, mostly mobile device based internet, and it's about recommendations in that, how does that extrapolate out when we go into this augmented reality, virtual reality type situation? I'm something of a skeptic on some level because I don't think this whole thing is going to be as immersive and brilliant as Zuckerberg says it's going to be. But at the same time, it's going to raise a whole new set of challenges that right now you log into YouTube and there are some recommendations on the side. But when the the things that are put in front of you in this augmented world are resemble something much closer to day-to-day -day life, you know, something that just appears on the side of you and that's a recommendation, that is going to raise some really interesting mm -hmm. questions. And, well, I don't think that we policymakers, stakeholders are ready for the current debate we're in, let alone as it starts to become more immersive and more difficult and those those blurred lines between the internet and our offline face-to-face -face worlds become even more enmeshed. Well, Joe, it's been, it's been fascinating talking to you. All I can say is, um, well, good luck with um, sorting all that out. <laughs> and you. we'll look forward to um, all the answers which you will doubtless provide us with in the future. But um, yeah, well, good luck with your work and thanks for coming in. Thanks, we're delighted to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Society Column. The next one will be available next Monday from wherever you normally find your podcasts.